Okay, well, thank you very much for that welcome. Um, I'm very glad to be here. I've been anxiously looking at the uh, weather forecasts for Melbourne for the last week and uh, feeling in great trepidation as I come from Queensland. <laughs> but it's been quite nice, but you have nice warm buildings. In Queensland, we tend not to have nice warm buildings because it's normally warm. So when it is cold up there, it's very cold <laughs> inside. Uh, yes, I, I, um, I, I've known Morris Nicholson for a long time. I was just telling it up, it's over 50 years since I first met Morris, which makes me very old, of course. <laughs> very old indeed. <laughs> but um, my grandmother became a Christian uh, a long time ago, 1930s I guess it was, uh, when uh, an evangelist came from South Africa by the name of Frederick Van Eyck. Frederick Van Eyck was quite a, um, a powerful, bold evangelist, Pentecostal. Uh, many people were healed through his ministry. He, uh, he travelled up in Queensland, New South Wales, Queensland. He was probably down here and uh, he would have a thousand people in picture theatres uh, up the coast, provincial cities, right up to Cairns. And my grandmother uh, w was in Cairns at the time and she uh, went to these meetings became a believer and was baptised in Freshwater Creek, which is a creek just outside of Cairns. And, um, and so she was, a, she was a Pentecostal Christian. But uh, my grandfather was a station master. He was a relieving station master, which meant he travelled uh, a lot. Didn't stay in one place that long. Would go to other railway stations to look after them. And, um, and so she got out of the way of uh, Pentecostal fellowship and she didn't really want to go to a mainline church. So... Um, in my memory, I, she wasn't going to church. Uh, I was actually brought up by her. My parents separated before I could remember and it was my grandmother who looked after me. And uh, I always knew that she had something uh, extra as far as knowing the Lord was concerned. She had a Bible and I knew she had a, a, a high regard for that and uh, I always reasoned to myself, if ever I needed to know anything about what being a Christian was, then I could ask her and I knew she would have the answer. Well, um, I was into my teenage years and uh, going my way. And uh, I remember at, at this particular point I, I felt it really would be good for me to start going to church. I used to go to Sunday school as you did back then. And uh, uh, I sort of knew basically the Bible stories and so on. But I felt it would be good for me to go to church. So I started going to, to the Presbyterian Church of a Sunday night and it was there I met Morris. Morris Nicholson had just come out of university, he was working for Primary Industries Department uh, in, uh, in Nambour where I was and he was the youth leader and the minister of the church who was actually the Presbyterian theologian for Queensland, uh, he's very liberal in his theology, uh, he introduced me to Morris and said that this is the youth leader sort of thing and uh, you need to go to uh, these youth meetings. So Morris was taking Bible studies in John's Gospel and, uh, and I would go every Sunday evening about 6 o'clock or something like that before the main service and somewhere in that time uh, I became a Christian. In the, in, in the sense I could not, you know, I didn't sort of, uh, I didn't have that category in my mind because I, I thought well I always was a Christian. All I remember was having a great excitement that I knew God was my father. And, uh, and I was so excited about this. And here I was in this fashionable church. It was a society church, if you like. Or, you know, a lot of the important people of town would come to this church. Um, 
But there I was with this new life uh, inside of me, but not knowing much about theology or really what it was. And I recall sometime after attending a meeting where there was a travelling evangelist coming through and many churches had come together and this man was preaching from John 3 on being born again. And they gave an invitation to come out the front. And I thought to myself, well that's already happened to me. I have been born again. And I'd never heard the term before. But uh, when he described it, I said, that's, that's me. I don't need to go out the front. I am born again. And, uh, and so I went on from there. I, um, I, uh, I, became mar- I was married um, in the early 70s. My wife was a, a nurse. Actually, uh, she, she was nursing down here when I, um, when I first noticed her. A long way. But <laughs> I knew her in Namborn. She came down here to Queen Victoria Hospital where she was working as a, to be trained as, as a midwife. And um, I remember coming down, I came down to the camp at Beulah Heights one year and I, I made contact with her down here. She was in the nurses' quarters and uh, saw her for a bit and, and so on, then went back to Nambour and uh, anyway, eventually uh, we were married. We had both wanted to go to Bible college. I was very keen to go to Bible college, but I never felt free to go to Bible college. It was not until after we were married and uh, Brenda, my wife, also had wanted to go but uh, didn't feel it was the right thing. And as soon as we were married, we built a house and that was it. Then God said, now I want you to go to Bible college. And I thought, well, that, that's back to front, surely. This is not the right, right way of doing things. So um, uh, with much difficulty, we rented out the house. We went to Bible college and um, uh, uh, two years there. And uh, after that, uh, I went uh, and worked for Teen Challenge in Brisbane. Five years I was uh, working with Teen Challenge, kids on drugs and so on. Did a lot of uh, public speaking for Teen Challenge in churches and um, rotary clubs and all sorts of things like this. Um, later on, uh, did pastoral work in a pioneer work for, for 10 years, 11 years. And then um, we went overseas. Went, uh, first of all, to Kazakhstan, Central Asia. Did a year with a Teen Challenge center there. My wife, being a nurse, was sort of the nurse in this place and, uh, and we saw a lot of uh, strange, amazing things in uh, this post-Soviet country and uh, uh, went to orphanages and, and places like this, saw some terrible, terrible situations, um, the way the children were treated and, uh, and, and such like. Um, we came back again to Australia for a few years, then went back to Kazakhstan for two years this time, working with... Uh, a local mission and um, a, a brother um, who apparently is connected with your brother, Brother Gorenson, Sven Gorenson, Swedish missionary couple. They were originally in New Guinea and uh, we worked with them for two years in, in Kazakhstan. Uh, and um, I've also been to other places. I, I've uh, done some work in India, uh, the Philippines um, and odd mission, missions trips. In fact, I, I, did, uh, I went to India this year just for a weekend, a four-day weekend uh, camp and um, had a good time. It's always a moving thing to me to go to a place where they speak another language, particularly when they sing and they worship God uh, in another language that you've never heard before. And there you hear, it was Marathi in Maharashtra state and uh, it was just an amazing thing to listen to, uh, people worshipping God. And of course in Central Asia we heard that in the Kazakh language and in Russian uh, and Tajik and... Um, to realise this, this language is being used to glorify God, which for the most part probably had not. 
I was in India uh, in, in the meeting and there was a woman there that I noticed who had a, uh, she'd been, had a hard life. You could tell she had a hard life. She, in fact, had been, um, her daughter had been taken away from her by her mother-in-law, which apparently you can do in countries like this, said, and, and separated them. And she never saw this daughter for years. Uh, she let herself go. She became a mental case. And a member of that church met her, heard the story, and they prayed about this daughter. Within a week, she had met this. She had found her found the daughter that she had been taken away from. And um, <clears throat> uh, you could see the thankfulness that she'd received such grace from God. And uh, we were in the, in the meeting. I was, uh, I was sitting to the side and all the pews were like this. And, uh, and she was somewhere over here with a, with a friend, with the church member that she'd come to the Lord through. And uh, everyone was praising God and worshipping the Lord. And I felt this brush next, next to my, my leg. And I looked down and it was this lady laying on, on the floor uh, on her face like this, praising God and crying and crying and worshipping God. And um, what struck me was the floor was flagstone, stone floor, not carpet. And she's laying flat, down, flat out on this floor. When she got up, there was a pool of tears that big where she, where she lay. And I thought, you know, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have received great grace love the Lord a lot. Well, um, we'll come to the word and uh, I want to speak today, really following on, I, I guess, from what our brother has said about Lot, because that is much the theme that, um, that I'm looking at today. Um, it was interesting as I was thinking about that, brother. Lot had a wife and um, uh, Lot, of course, is our typical backslidden Christian. The New Testament calls him a righteous man, righteous Lot, even though he went into this terrible place. We know he was righteous because his righteous soul was vexed every day he lived in Sodom. But it seems that was not the case with Lot's wife. She loved Sodom. Her soul was not vexed. And it is this, this kind of person that I want to talk about today. Somebody who has come into experiencing the grace of God but has never crossed the line and embraced the gospel. In other words, they have never really been born again. And I, um, I've been exercised, I suppose we could say, uh, in recent times uh, by a, a, an incident uh, uh, concerning a friend uh, that I knew for many years. This young man, I, I first met him uh, when I was in Teen Challenge. He had uh, come out of the Nimbin Festival. Have you ever heard of the Nimbin Festival? The uh, Aquarius Festival that was held in Nimbin, New South Wales, 1973, I think it was. This was like the answer to America's Woodstock. You know, hippie, drugs, marijuana, all of that. They had this festival in this country town that went on for, for quite, a, quite a while. And uh, there were Christians set up a camp down there to, uh, to reach these people. So there were a number of people from Teen Challenge had gone from Brisbane down there and Christians from other places. And all sorts of weird stuff was, was happening at, in this, this uh, Nimbin festival, out in the bush. Well, this man had travelled up to Nimbin from, from somewhere down south and um, thought this would be interesting and uh, he was there and he was attracted to the, to the Christians. He ended up coming up to Brisbane following some of these Teen Challenge people and was kind of uh, like a fellow traveller for many years. And, uh, and I, knew, I knew Bob for, for quite a while. Um, you know, he would appear at meetings and so on. He was always there. And um, he was considered 
a born-again Christian. And, uh, but, uh, but he always had a very um, a cynical view of things. But uh, I'd only see him once a year or so. Then he got cancer. And, uh, and I was quite concerned for him. And so I, I started to visit him once a week um, during this illness. And I had this growing sense that Bob is not really a Christian. And uh, so I, I said to him one day, uh, are you really born again? And he said, well, I, um, I was baptized. I remember being baptized. But that wasn't the question. It was, are you really born again? And then he started kind of arguing around in circles about this, about being born again. And uh, he, he's a very, uh, very astute at, um, at debating you about things. And that's what he did. He was playing this game, going round in circles. And um, this particular time, he was sleeping most of the day because of the drugs he was on and so on. And, uh, uh, and normally he'd be up for an hour and then he'd be asleep again. But this time, it was two hours. We talked for two hours straight. And uh, finally, he stopped and he listened for the first time. And uh, you could see he was understanding what I was saying when I was talking about sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, then I had to go. He had to sleep. And I, I, I saw him a few times after that, once a week. He eventually died. What happened to him, I don't really know. But I prayed earnestly for him at that time. But the concern was upon me. But he was someone who had been a fellow traveller, to use an expression, with the crowd, with the Christians, for a long, long time, but never really knew the Lord in that whole thing. And everyone would consider, yes, he was. And I've, I've come across more than one case, even from that period of my life, where it's become obvious that certain people now have been attracted by the world or other things and, uh, and have gone a, a totally different direction. Well, I want to look at chapter 10 of Matthew. And, um, and I want to look at a, a contrast in, in chapter 10 between two things that Jesus says. One is, in his denunciations of the cities of Galilee, where he says, woe unto you. And he's naming a number of places. And the other is the invitation, the gentle invitation to come unto me. So we're looking at these two things. To one party he says, woe unto you, because of the blessing you have seen, but you have not done anything with it. And the other, it is come unto me. Those who, who labour and are heavy laden, come unto me. Well, let me read from verse 28. Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So this is chapter 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, there are five discourses or five sermons that Jesus delivers, five extended passages. And that is the structure of, of Matthew. Remember, remembering, of course, it is a particularly Jewish Gospel. So there are five sermons, and in between those five sermons there, there is narrative. There is accounts of what happens. So we are now in, in the midst of a narrative that follows one of those discourses. Now the first of those discourses, you may remember, is the Sermon on the Mount. And the last of those discourses is 
the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is particularly about what a Christian is. This is a description of what a believer is like. And of course the last discourse, the Olivet Discourse, is about the future. When he is going to come, when Jesus is going to come, uh, and the, the judgments that will follow. It is all to do with the future, which is appropriate when, when, you, when you think of the way Matthew structured it. The second discourse, the one in chapter 10, is, uh, is a discourse that has sometimes been called the missionary discourse or the, or the missionary sermon because it is the sending out of the twelve to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, it has also been called the little commission. Remember the great commission? Some people have called this the little commission. In the little commission, he ordains the twelve to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the great commission, he ordains us to go to the world. It is no longer confined to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, now we are commissioned to the whole world. Well, this follows chapter 10, where he ordains the, um, the twelve disciples to go out. He, he warns them of the persecution that's going to come, but says, have no fear. Nevertheless, he doesn't bring peace, he brings a sword. He even divides households. This is the kind of thing that's going to happen. It is going to have its difficulty and its problem. But I have commissioned you to do this. Now we come to the 11th chapter. The discourse has finished and, uh, and Jesus um, uh, immediately references John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, he sends a message with his two disciples. Are you the one who should come or do we look for another? We assume he had become quite discouraged being, being so long in jail and began to wonder. The kingdom had not come. Uh, what is happening? And Jesus says, go back to John and say, what has been happening? The, the deaf hear, the blind see, the leper is cleansed. Uh, the, the, uh, the lame walk and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go and tell John that. And then Jesus immediately goes into a, a discussion about John. Who did you go out to see? This man in soft clothing in the wilderness. Uh, this man, I tell you, was the greatest prophet that ever was. There was none greater than this man. And then he goes on to really uh, give a, almost a comparison between his ministry and that of John and how they both experienced similar, uh, similar responses. He ends that little passage by saying this in verse 16. But what shall, I, uh, what shall I compare this generation to? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another. We played the flute for you but you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This is the generation he has commissioned them to go to. John experienced this. So did Jesus. Of course, the children are in the marketplace playing. They play the flute and you're supposed to dance. You're supposed to be joyful. So the good news comes that is meant to bring joy. That is, there's disinterest. 
this generation is not interested. We, we play or we sing the dirge, the funeral song. This is a serious message. We're talking about judgment to come, but you're unconcerned. You, uh, you, you will not mourn with us. This is what that generation was like, and of course, this is what our generation is like. It has no interest. It will not take things seriously. It was um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned before, uh, who said, the most serious thing that a man can do is to listen to the gospel because of the implications, the eternal implications of listening to the gospel, what they are. But who is serious enough to, to listen? Who is serious enough to take to heart what is being said? Our generation, their generation, was the same. He goes on in verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton, a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. This generation was fickle, perverse, obstinate and wayward. And so it is today. Well, um, I want to look at the contrast uh, uh, between these, these two things I mentioned, woe unto you and come un unto me, and, uh, and then the invitation. Well, the, the severe denunciation that we read of in verse, from verse 20 of chapter 11, where Jesus denounces the cities of Galilee. Now, the three cities he mentions here, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum. Let's, let's read that passage. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Turazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable. I want you to notice that expression, more tolerable on the day of judgment, for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, Chorazin, Bethsaida and Capernaum were called the evangelical triangle, another expression to describe, because these three cities at the, at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee formed a triangle. Capernaum was on the coast of the sea, the other two were inland and above Capernaum. Now today, uh, of course, um, we know uh, about Capernaum. It is uh, just a ruin. There's, there's a ruin of the house of uh, what was believed to be Peter's house, there is a ruin, or at least the foundations, of what was the synagogue of Capernaum. But beyond that, it's, it's pretty much just, just stones uh, and ruins. The other two, Chorazin and Bethsaida, are places we don't know even where they are. Uh, there's some speculation as to the location, but they're gone. They've disappeared, as far as we can tell. So these three places he is talking about. Terazin and Bethsaida, he compares to Tyre and Sidon. Now these two places, Tyre and Sidon, were Phoenician cities on the coast uh, of the Mediterranean. 
So they were at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. They're actually within the area that was to be part of Israel. Well, they, um, they were prosperous centres. Tyre particularly. Tyre uh, uh, was a merchant city. It controlled the trade that came from that to that end of the Mediterranean. And from there, uh, trade would continue out to India and uh, probably as far as China. And of course, they became very wealthy. Tyre was a city of, uh, of merchants and beautiful merchants' houses and a lot of money. They were made wealthy. And you can read God's judgment of Tyre if you, if you turn to Ezekiel, I think uh, 25, 26, uh, up to 28, I think it is. Uh, and it gives you an extended uh, insight into what Tyre was like and what the king of Tyre was like. And it, it was, in God's view, a very evil place. They were evil particularly because when Israel fell to Nebuchadnezzar and the children of Israel or the, or the Judeans were exiled to Babylon, uh, Tyre rejoiced. They rejoiced because uh, Israel or Jerusalem had also been a great trading city under, uh, the, um, under the second king after David, uh, David and Solomon. Under Solomon, uh, there was a lot of trade. He really shouldn't have been doing all that trade, but he did. He traded in Arabian horses and had horse stables all, all around Israel and made a lot of money. But, uh, but God prospered him for, you know, for the sake of David. But uh, when Jerusalem fell, it was no longer the great trading centre that it had become under Solomon. And so Tyre was very happy. And God said, because you have rejoiced at the fall of my people, I'm going to judge you. And Ezekiel pronounces the judgment. This is what's going to happen to you. You will be judged. You will be destroyed. Well, this is part of what he said. They, now, now he talks about many, many nations were going to come against them. They will plunder your riches, pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timbers, your soil in the midst of the water. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her a bare rock. And this is what, in fact, did happen to Tyre. Soon after Ezekiel made his prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar turned his attention to, to Tyre after exiling the people of, Ju of Judah. And, uh, and he built siege ramps against Tyre and destroyed it. Now, what Tyre was, was, was a, a, a city on the coast and also, it was a city on an island about one to two kilometres off the coast. There was a large rock island out there and was, was very suitable to become a, um, a stronghold. And so they, they also built um, a fortress, if you like. There were 50 um, metre high cliffs facing the land and upon top of that, they built walls. So it, it was a, a greatly fortified city or part of the city. The main city was, the, was on land and the other one was out in the, in the sea, in the Mediterranean. Now when Nebuchadnezzar came, he destroyed the, um, the, the land-based city, Old Tyre, they called it. But he didn't touch the island because he had no navy. Nebuchadnezzar had a land-based army, no navy. Well, as time went on, of course, we know the Medo-Persian uh, Empire arose and then Alexander the Greek rose in power 
Alexander defeated the Medo-Persian Empire and then turned his attention to the southern Mediterranean. He wanted to secure that coastline uh, because um, of the, the powers, the naval powers that existed. So he turned the corner from Greece and, and then came down uh, toward Sidon and Tyre. And he made treaties on the way down. Then he came to Tyre. He made a treaty with, with Sidon, then came to Tyre. And um, then said, uh, well, look, there's a, um, I'll make a treaty with you. They agreed. Yes, we'll make a treaty. No problem. Then he said, this is what I want to do. I want to come to your, out to your island because you have a, uh, a temple out there and uh, the god, the god of my family, uh, Heracles is his name, I want to come and, and pay my devotions to this god and you just happen to have the idol in your temple. And they said, well, no, we're not really keen on that. Uh, you can go to the old city of Tyre because there's also a temple there to, 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 this, uh, to this god. Um, that you may do. And, uh, and Alexander said, no. I want to come to the actual idol on your fortress island. And the, uh, the people of Tyre said, no, you may not. Which was a very bad uh, decision on their part. So Alexander said, that's it, I'm angry, I'm going to destroy Tyre completely. So what he did, now what of course they had done, they had moved off land and entrenched themselves on the island. So what Alexander did was that um, he, he took the old city piece by piece, timber by timber, stone by stone and threw it into the Mediterranean and built a causeway right out to that island I don't know, between one and two kilometres off, off land. And he scraped the very soil of old Tyre and tipped it into the Mediterranean Sea, just as Ezekiel said would happen. So he built his causeway out, he called in naval vessels from other cities that he now controlled, and they laid siege, and they destroyed the city, and they, um, they, uh, they slew most of the people. They crucified a couple of thousand people, this is Alexander, and the rest they sent off as slaves, they sold as slaves. So Tyre was reduced to nothing. Uh, today, if you look at a map, uh, you will see that, that, uh, that there's now an isthmus out to that rock island because the, the sand and the silt has now built up on either side of Alexander's causeway and it has spread out and now it is like part of the, the coastline. So, they must have been pretty bad people for God to have brought such judgment through the hand of Alexander. But Jesus says, it's going to be more tolerable for them, for the city of Tyre and of Sidon, than for Bethsaida and Chorazin in the day of judgment. Now there is such a thing as, as, um, as levels of judgment uh, or intensities of judgment. Jesus said, some will be punished with few stripes and some with many. What calls for many stripes? What calls for the greater judgment? It is when you see greater light, but you turn away from it. And that is what is happening, or happened, with the evangelical triangle. The three cities, where most of Jesus' Galilean ministry took place. It was between those three cities. And yet now, we find, having seen all they saw, 
they turned away in the end and refused to embrace the truth and believe this glorious gospel. Well, Capernaum, there's the next one. Exalted to heaven, no, you will be brought down to hell. It will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, what bad thing did Capernaum do that is worse than what Sodom did? Sodom, the very name, speaks to us evil. If ever there's an evil place, it is Sodom. That's where Lot lived, where he vested his righteous soul every day of his life in Sodom. This is the place where the worst of things happened, Sodom. Uh, you remember the, the, the case of the, um, when the angel came in and uh, the men of the city crowded around the house of Lot and called out uh, the angel for, for terrible reasons. And uh, I've been reading this book uh, called uh, A Thousand Miles of Miracles by uh, Archibald Glover. He was a missionary in, in, in China and, um, in 1900. And this was during the Boxer uh, uh, Arising. The, the Boxer rebels were, were, were wreaking havoc against foreigners in China in the, uh, in the, uh, around 1900. And um, he, his wife, his two children and one lady missionary were attempting to escape and they, had, they, they travelled something like a month on foot and they were being oppressed and threatened with execution by boxers. Uh, the, boxers was the name, the, the Chinese name for this, this group of like paramilitary type individuals who just hated foreigners. In fact, the whole population in certain areas just hated foreigners. Foreign devils, you've heard that expression. So that every village they came into, they were, they were, they were called out foreign devils, get rid of them, kill them. And every place they came to, Crowds would gather around them, threatening them. And they thought every day was their last day. For a whole month they went on like this. Every day was their last, last day. The boxers would threaten them. We're going to kill you now. We're going to take you. We're going to cut your head off and so on and so on and so on. Finally, miraculously, though they suffered tremendously, they got through. But, um, but what human beings can do can be most horrific when, when crowds you know, a, uh, a mob spirit takes a hold of a crowd. Uh, it, it is the most frightening thing that you can imagine. And it seems this, was, this also was characteristic of, of even Sodom, that this uh, mob mentality could take over. Well, Sodom is a bad place. But Jesus says Capernaum was worse. Let's look at what happened in Capernaum. Jesus cast a demon out of a man in Mark 1. It was in Capernaum. The healing of the paralytic let down through the roof was in Capernaum. The healing of the Roman centurion's servant took place in Capernaum. The raising of the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, also took place in Capernaum. And Jesus' bread of life discourse took place in the synagogue of Capernaum. These things happened in this place. They saw these miracles. They saw these marvellous things. They heard these words, the people of Capernaum. And yet, their judgment will be more severe in that day than the people of Sodom. And yet, nothing tremendously evil was spoken of about them, what they did, except they turned from light and didn't embrace truth. 
well. We contrast that with the invitation of come unto me a few verses later. It's a complete change. Absolute, absolutely complete change of tone and of attitude when this invitation is given. Come unto me all you who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, there's a transition here. Here uh, it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Reveal them unto little children. I, you have hidden these things. What things? These mighty works, these things that were said, they have been hidden from the wise and the prudent, the wise and the understanding. There seems to be almost a selectivity here that wonderful things were said but yet hidden from many. But there were others who heard it. He describes here as the little children. There is a call we call the general call of the gospel. It goes to everybody. And, there, and yet there is a call that seems more specific. And here we have it. To whom is the more specific call made? To those who labour and are heavy laden. That's who he is addressing in this invitation. You who labour, you who are heavy laden and know it. It's not that the others do not labour, but they don't seem to know it. But it is those who know it, those who realise their problem, their difficulty. It is the sick that need the physician, not the well. More specifically, it is the sick who know they're sick. They're the ones who need the physician. Of course, every sinner is sick. He is sick with sin. But many seem to be unaware of this fact. Well, the um, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says in the, uh, the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, they know they are spiritually poor. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn for their state. They mourn for the sinfulness of their own heart. They are aware of it. And it is to them this word is directed. And it is they who will hear it. Well, they labour and they're heavy laden. Labour is an active word and heavy laden is a passive term. You know, you labour, you are doing something. It's active. What, what kind of labour do the, those who labour labour in? Well, um, the law, of course, the, has the works of the law. The, 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 this is labour. There shall no flesh be justified in his sight by the works of the law. And yet, man naturally wants to labour if, he, if he's going to earn anything. We always want to do this. This is the way human nature works. I will earn my salvation. Thank you very much. I don't need to be given anything. So I engage in this heavy labour. You remember Martin, uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was probably arguably the most devout monk in all Germany, if not all of Europe, when you actually read what he went through. Uh, he, uh, he, of course, as a young man, was studying law. He was out in the country and a storm broke and lightning struck the ground just nearby where he stood. And immediately he said, I give my life to the church. I will become a monk. 
and next thing he was an Augustinian monk where he was set about the task of becoming acceptable to God by labour, by really heavy labour. But he knew the wickedness of his own heart. It's said of Martin Luther that he engaged in every conceivable discipline to obtain grace. He renounced all self-will, he ate meagre food, little more than bread and water. He wore uncomfortable clothing and uncomfortable shoes. He engaged in sleepless vigils. In other words, he kept himself awake at night in order to earn. He, stopped. He, he, he stooped to begging for food when he didn't need to. He fasted often, so often his friends feared he would die and he allowed himself to freeze, going out in the cold without cloak, without coat, to freeze. He said, the cold was enough to kill me. I inflicted such pain I would never inflict again. He, was, uh, he at all costs wanted to avoid purgatory, which in the Catholic system, of course, purgatory is the place that has been set aside for those who are too bad to go to heaven but too good to go to hell. So they're sent to purgatory where they can work off um, the merit they need. And he wished not to go there. So, hence his labour. 800 miles he trekked on foot to Rome to earn penance, to gain from the treasury of merit, as they call it. But he did not. Not until he believed the gospel did he know true freedom. His confessor, a man by the name of Stupitz, who was his priest confessor, told him one day, don't come to me again, Martin, until you do something really bad like adultery or something like that because he was going to confess every little thing all the time. So conscience-stricken was this man in order to get to heaven. Well, those who labour and are heavy laden, it is to them the invitation comes. Those just like this man, Martin Luther, who never found freedom until one day he actually understood the Gospel and the Book of Romans that he was actually teaching at that time in the, in the seminary. He was teaching the Book of Romans and then one day the light dawned and he said it was like he's come out of the prison. Freedom in believing the truth. Well, um, you labour and are heavy laden, the works of the law. Of course, this was the subject of the, uh, of the council meeting in Acts 15 when uh, the question of what about the Gentiles and keeping the law? Should they keep the law? The question was taken to the, um, the apostles and the elders and they had a conference, a, um, a council meeting and Peter stood up in that council meeting and said, look, now therefore why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers could bear? This is not the thing to do. They will not be justified by the works of the law. We will not put this yoke upon them. Still relevant today, still relevant today that we do not do put such a yoke on our necks. Well, um, also we have the works of the flesh which are listed in Galatians. All the bad things that can be done. These also are works. These are also are works that will bow someone down by trying to work for justification and by doing evil things by doing the works of the flesh. Notably, it doesn't say the fruit of the flesh, it is the works of the flesh. 
we are bound to do works by nature. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, of course, remember Christian was the subject of his, uh, of his story. He had the burden upon his back and uh, he carried that the whole way through the book. Every difficulty, every person he met, it was all to do with getting rid of this burden. He met evangelists, he met um, you know, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, he went through the slough of despond and, and all of these places and eventually he came to the foot of the cross and it was only then the burden fell from off his back and he was free. So if you are burdened, of course this is the passive side, heavy laden. It's passive. He couldn't, it was done to him. He couldn't get rid of it himself. It had to be taken from him. So we have this abiding invitation to come right through scripture when Noah built the ark. One day God says, now come Noah, you and all your house into the ark. This is the place of safety. And Isaiah, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you have no money, come, buy, eat, drink. Out cost, without price. And right in the, in the last chapter of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. There is always this invitation to those who are needy and those who know that they are needy. Come. If you're thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So we see this picture right through, Bi- through the Bible. To come unto him and to come into rest. That is a very important word. Rest. And that is a picture of salvation. The Sabbath, of course, is a picture of salvation. We now live in the Sabbath every day of the week. Yes, we have come into rest. The rest of the people of God. This also is addressed by the writer to the Hebrews in the third chapter. Here it is in the form of a warning. Now this is the warning that I I was talking about. This is the warning that was not heeded by the wife of of Lot. She came to the gates but uh, her heart was back there. There was salvation but she turned from it because her love was elsewhere. This seems to be a Jewish problem also. Of course the book of Hebrews is specifically a Jewish letter to Jews particularly. And uh, it does seem that the children of Israel have this problem. It is a Jewish problem. This coming to grace, confronting rest, but not actually going in. Of course, it is not just a Jewish problem. It is also a Gentile problem. Because the Jewish people, to me, and God's dealings with the Jews, are a microcosm of God's dealing with the whole world. What the Jew goes through, the whole world goes through. It's just like God has given us this picture in the nation of Israel to confirm and to nail down the fact that people are by nature sinners and grace alone will bring them out of that. I mean, uh, we have this theory, you know, about um, uh, what causes people to do the wrong thing. Is it nature or is it nurture? You've heard this expression. Is it something that's just in you because you inherited from your parents? Or is it the way uh, you were brought up? Does that make you do certain things? So it's an ongoing um, discussion. But as someone said to me once, I thought it was very uh, appropriate that if we're going to argue for um, it's, it's nurture, it's your environment, it's do you have a job, it's uh, do you have money, does that make you bad or good or otherwise? 
which is the, the general thing that, that we're told. You know, people behave badly because they don't have this and they don't have that. And uh, this person said, well, just remember that the first sin, the very first sin, took place in paradise when the environment was perfect. All was well. And yet, they chose to sin. The same with the children of Israel. What they received from God was, was received by no other people. God knew them in a way God knew no other nation. God blessed them in a way no other nation was blessed. God delivered them out of Egypt, fed them with heavenly food, led them with fire and cloud above them, caused the flinty rock to give them water, provided everything for them. And you would think, well, they, they would now have to trust him at every every turn. But did they? They did not. And as if time after time, year after year, century after century, you see this same repeat in the history of Israel. Blessing from God met ultimately by unbelief. And uh, as if God needs to nail down the fact that yes, sinfulness is sinful. And man is inherently, hopelessly, totally lost unless by the grace of God he is redeemed out of that. Well, so it is, of course, for all of us. The book of Hebrews, uh, I suggest, was written for three reasons. Remembering it was, it was, of course, written specifically to Jews, but, of course, to Gentile believers as well. One, to confirm to Jewish Christians in the faith by showing the Old Testament law was fulfilled in Christ. The law was a shadow and uh, it was fulfilled. Christ is the fulfilment of it. And of course, uh, if you're going to um, just live by law, you're dealing with shadows. You're not dealing with the real. So, that was number one. Two, by warning those who had come uh, attracted to the faith, but refused or failed to enter into salvation and were tempted to go back to the Old Testament Judaism that they had been brought up in. This is a warning uh, well, don't we have the best religion in the world? Judaism. Is, the, is this not the only God-given religious system that exists? Yes, it is. The pagans had their systems, but this was God-given. Surely there must be something good in this. So this was a great temptation. Another was simply to bring it along with us. You know, to bring, to bring the law along because the law is good, to uh, inculcate the good things of our old religion into our new religion. I was in a church, uh, it was kind of a more messianic church, a messianic Christian church, at one stage many years ago. And uh, there was one young couple there, that had two children. He was very much into Hebrew roots and so on. He had his Hebrew translation Bible. One day, um, they, uh, they up and they left the church and went to the synagogue became Jewish. I presume they went through Jewish conversion and so on. But had totally missed what this gospel was about. Had become so fascinated, so taken up with um, all things Jewish, you know, camp and everything like that. And, uh, and so that's last I heard of them. That's where they went. 
Yeah, as I was saying, that it, it's, uh, it, it's always a danger also to, bring, to, bring, to, to look carefully about where you have come from, particularly if you had uh, you know, a, a great regard for whatever religious system you were in, to want to take that into your new faith in Christ. This was, of course, the danger of, of the Judaizers in the New Testament. A danger that has not receded, it seems to me. The third reason was to show the absolute preeminence of Christ. You see that right through the, the book of Hebrews, the absolute preeminence of Christ. And the warning comes to this great company that came out of Egypt. He goes on and, he, and, it, and it says this in Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked by that generation and said they do always err in their hearts and they go astray. Well, this is quoting Psalm 95, the warning that was given uh, concerning what happened back in Numbers 14. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt, they came to the gates of Kadesh Barnea, but they halted. The spies were sent in, they brought... Some good report, the majority brought a bad report. They said, no, we're not going in, we can't, it's too, it's too hard. Now, they were accused, not of fear, they were accused of unbelief. That's what it says. And also they were accused of, they have not known my ways. They had been right through the desert, they had seen the miracles, just as the, uh, as the Galileans had seen the miracles of Jesus. So they saw God's miraculous hand in parting the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptian army, feeding them from heaven, and yet they failed to believe at this point. We know then they turned and they spent 40 years circling the wilderness and God said, they will not enter my rest. They will die in the wilderness and every one of them died except Joshua and Caleb. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. They became a, 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 become a picture of halting, not entering rest. That is the most dangerous position in the world to be in. To know great things. To have heard great things and seen great things. But then say, but I won't come in. I won't enter. Remember the, the, the parable of the sower? There were four types of soil one sower, one kind of seed. The sower was the same, the seed was the same. It was only the soil that was different. The hard ground, of course, we know was, that was the compact path. The seed fell on it. The birds of the air came and took it and it couldn't do anything. No way it was going to enter the, the ground and germinate. It was just taken away. Jesus said that was the devil. He will come and take the seed out of your heart so quickly. The second soil was rocky soil, suggesting a rocky shelf with a thin layer of soil seed fell in, it germinated quickly. It sprung up. Green leaf appeared. But Jesus said, through tribulation and persecution it withers and it dies. Tribulation and persecution. How often have you heard that? I don't believe in God anymore because of terrible things. The war that happened. Or some terrible thing that happened to me. Charles Darwin said his loss of faith he dated from the death of his small daughter but I suspect he always had that unbelief but that became the excuse 
for him to publicize it. Persecution. This is very hard being a Christian. I didn't, I didn't expect that people would dislike me if I joined with this, uh, this company. The third uh, soil was the thorny soil, the cares of this life or the pleasures of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Again, the thorny plants grow up and they choke the plant. Uh, it did shoot, it did germinate, but it died. The final soil was the good soil, the one who hears and understands the word. The seed germinates and it grows. The green leaf comes up, but it bears fruit. And that is the difference. It bears fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. It is not a question of how much, but it is a question of fruit. That was the only difference. Because the husbandman looks not for green leaf, but for fruit. That's the whole purpose of the, far of the farming exercise, to get produce. There's something similar said uh, in, uh, in a previous chapter. For the land that has drunk in the rain or that often falls upon it produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated. The whole idea was to get the crop. The rain fell. The sun shone. But it did nothing. There was no fruit. So here we have the good soil. A hundredfold, sixtyfold, even thirtyfold. It's a little bit of fruit. For some there's a lot of fruit in their lives. But for some there's only a little. But it is the real thing. And it's for that we, we look for. And uh, when I look back on my friend, as I, as I look back on his life, it, it becomes clear to me that I never really did see fruit in his life. Even a little. But when you see that little, you know there's something real there. Well, Jeremiah prophesied, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Of course, the, uh, the background of that is that the harvest was the grain harvest, the barley, the wheat. So here we are at, the, at this point in the year when harvest time has come and gone. We're in famine. We're in difficult circumstances. And we've, we've received nothing. Then it says the summer is past, meaning the summer harvest, which was the fruit harvest, it's come and it's gone. So here they are in this predicament. We have not been delivered. We are in famine, no fruit. That is the worst of, of places, of situations to be in. But uh, again, the writer of the Hebrews says this, let us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience as applied to the children of Israel. Let us not be in this situation where the harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the, the somber and solemn warnings that we see in the history of Israel and we see in the history of individuals throughout the Bible. But we thank you that we have heard an invitation that is gentle and that is sweet and that is real. Come unto me. That we may lay down our burden, that we may cease from our own striving and enter into rest. We thank you 
in the name of Jesus, for all you have done for us. Amen.